out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. And as you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the American musician and record producer. It's the one and only... Paul Rosler, who I spoke to recently to find out more about life, love and poetry, was part of the L.A. punk scene during the late 70s and 80s. has been a life in music and is currently now a record producer and has his own studio in Silver Lake, which is in L.A. But he was in such bands as The Screamers, Twisted Roots, 45 Grey, Nervous Gender, has played with such people as Nina Hagen. But this is the interview, and that's what you want to listen to, basically. So um, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Paul, it's over to you. Well, I'm a little older than you. Um, so, I, yeah, I can remember, you know, when I'm a little kid, you know, the first stuff I listened to, I think my mom had all the Peter, Paul and Mary records. Yes. And played that, which, you know, it sounds incredibly cheesy and silly, but it's actually a, a great introduction to protest music and early. Uh, it's kind of the slicked up commercial version of uh, very politically aware music. My dad played a lot of Wagner and Beethoven and classical music in the house. Uh, I think someone gave me when I was about 10 years old, someone gave me Sergeant Peppers. So I was a big Beatle, crazy Beatle guy. I had a, um, I had a, a, a older uncle. He was seven years older than me. And he used to give me a record every year. And he, he gave me Donovan and he gave me the band and he gave me, uh, Oh, I don't know the Woodstock. So I, I kind of was in the mainstream classic rock as a 10 or 11 year old, but I had a series of awakenings. I had a, I had a, uh, a Rolling Stones awakening. My friend uh, was in Rolling Stones fanatic and he, uh, you know, a lot of times it's associated when you're a teenager with you drop acid and then you have this like religious experience around the band. So I had a dropping acid religious experience around the Rolling Stones. And then eventually with my friend, Paul Beam, who later became known as Darby Crash, I had a religious awakening on acid with David Bowie. Oh, so that, yeah. That is amazing, because strangely enough, I don't know if you had this experience at all, but um, my parents weren't, they were, had been kind of into music, my dad had, but they were that kind of working class generation that when they got married, I think they just basically sold everything they owned just to get some money. They never borrowed money. That was a generation that did not borrow money. So they just work, work, save money, buy something. So I think he liked Elvis and Teresa Brewer and these kind of 50s people like that. I don't know. Sort of. And then country and Western. He loved sort of people like Jim Reeves and Boxcar Willie. Really terrible country and Western. But I had an older brother who was seven years older. And he um, and we got a record player introduced to the house in the early 70s, mid 70s. And he had to eat. And it was interesting because he brought bought the Sgt. Pepper album and Goodbye Yellow Brick Road. And I'm, I remember sneaking into his room and playing these records religiously and being absolutely mesmerised because there was no cultural context at that stage about either of these. And then you look back and you think, God, the Beatles had only just broken up, really. Um, but, you know, I remember being obsessed with a track called Good Morning on side two and, you know, all these kind of 
there was just it was just a fascinating kind of experience but I, one I, one in his room you know listen to that because there was no one else that I could talk to I'd just be listening to the lyrics about she's leaving home and day in a life and thinking wow this is interesting and then goodbye and then goodbye yellow brick road had this amazing track on side four called harmony which was this beautiful kind of melancholic track I was like I oh my god that's just blowing my brain, you know. So well, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about listening to music without cultural context and stripping away nostalgia and stripping away, trying to listen to music for strictly on content. Now, that's a little bit, it's just one way of listening to music because obviously imp the importance of music is its impact on culture. But I really, being a really a pure musician and a composer, I really am interested in what about the just the actual boiled down to the notes the message the melody the clearest possible distill, distillation completely separate from culture so it's just it's interesting that you say that it's a different way of of listening to music yes and especially when you're sneaking into your brother's bedroom to to listen to it while being forbidden and it's interesting you mentioned peter paul and mary because my parents did buy a couple of records when the record player appeared and one of them was the carpenters and that was that had a profound effect on my life and it still does because i still think lyrically you know again i was 11 probably and it was just like god these lyrics you know i just was amazed with the lyrics it was just the like thing i noticed the thing i noticed when i listened to peter paul mary i was only like six years old but i noticed that all my favorite songs and you, they had who wrote the song next to each song. And they said a lot of them were like traditional, traditional, traditional old folk songs. Right. But some of my favorite songs were all written by someone named B. Dylan. And so later and then they had a song called Bob Dylan's Dream. And I was like, oh, B. Dylan, I was six years old. I'm figuring all this out. I'm like, that must be Bob Dylan. Who is Bob Dylan? And then I eventually got a Bob Dylan record. So I had a definitely a religious experience over Bob Dylan. And the one other religious experience I forgot about was my religious experience over Yes. Well, the first time I discovered Yes. And that was that was a big one for me. That that never wore off. No, that didn't. Well, bizarrely, you mentioned that because my brother was that generation who was into prog rock. It was prog rock. There was no seven-inch singles. It was just uh albums they were put in plastic sleeves so yes genesis wishbone ash barclay james harvest and the solo work of rick wakeman and jeff rotel emerson lake and palmer uh were two of my favorites also uh and i wrote i i got so i wrote a 47 minute song i had a prog band and i recorded it in 2012 and it's uh I was able to actually, after 40 years, hold the vinyl in my hand that I had written when I was 16. It was amazing. Yes. Like dream come true. It was it was quite amazing. And again, I remember putting on King Arthur, the album King Arthur, and and being like listening to this vocal, which I think was Vivian Stanshaw, but doing the narrative and then you know, Journey to the Center of the Earth and um the six wives of Henry VIII. Or, or the eight wives, no, six wives of Henry. Yeah, I was absolutely mesmerized with Rick Wakeman. I just loved Rick Wakeman. Um, yeah, being, so. a keyboard, being a keyboard player, I was really trying to ape, ape that. But then by 1976 or 77, all of those great prog bands, uh, and they'd all done their best work. And they were all kind of putting out sort of bad, bloated, and then the next big spiritual experience was hearing the Sex Pistols and going and seeing the germs and the deadbeats at the whiskey and realizing music had been reborn. Yes. But interestingly enough, because, you know, having a bit of an obsessive 
personality at times well not that obsessive really quite liberal but I did I did get to the source of prog rock I found the absolute source of prog rock which was really interesting because because being a David Bowie obsessive I was like I tried to interview anybody who'd played with him or worked with him or even you know his ex-wife his manager um yeah his friend who punched him in the eye you know just anybody to connect with David Bowie you know Ava Cherry Dana Gillespie you know Garson Slick you know Tony DeFries Angie Bowie all those people you know I've interviewed them all and then he he sort of mentions in the 90s a band that he he liked in the 60s called Clouds or One Two Three they're called and there was a Scottish prog band that started in the 60s and he mentions them in an interview and everyone's like confused like who are you who are you talking about and anyway it turns out that they were a Scottish well they were a Scottish prog band and they featured a guy called Billy Ritchie on keyboards so I kind of did an interview with Billy Ritchie and he was like yeah we were kind of basically referred to as the first ever prog band so if you ever watch any prog documentaries and it's and they're well done they go back to this band billy ritchie and bowie clouds? gets clouds clouds clouds, oh, clouds. Oh. And, and they started as one two three they changed it they started in 1964 and he and he told me that um in those early gigs that all those members of prog bands turned up to watch them and and David would hang around with him and just kind of just because at that time you know he was hanging out with you know people like Billy Ritchie was hanging out with people like Jimi Hendrix and Bowie was like oh can I come along with you and hang out with you and sort of um and then he has a moment on stage where he gets really fed up smashes up his instrument and never plays another note again in his life so so there you go I'll send you the link to his into uh, one of his interviews Fascinating. Uh, I mean, I think Prague, it's sort of a, you know, I think of punk, the punk movement is progressive also. It's like we're in a lull, we're in a rut, things have gotten stale, and then you progress out of it. And I think the prog rockers just saw like, well, what would happen if we, you know, abandoned blues riffs or what happened if we did odd meters? And, you know, like that's just forward thinking, you know, uh, progressive music is associated with a certain era, but I just think it's a, it's a it, all music. It's, it's it's a sort of a repeating thing where there's traditionalists and then there's people people who are trying to recreate. And I record people in my in my studio where they're really reverent of the past and they want to sound like the past. And then I have people that are. So can we somehow figure out something completely different? You know. Yes, this, this does Challenge. happen. And were your parents at all influential in your kind of direction in life? Well. Um, I grew up in New Haven, Connecticut. My dad was at Yale. And um, um, I will say, you know, people use the word narcissist a lot. Um, and they they mean somebody who takes a lot of selfies. And there, it, narcissism is actually a condition. And um, in my home, um, my father sort of believed that he was a, a sort of a superior man. And that therefore his children would be superior superior human beings he moved us to the caribbean uh to to sort of fertilize us and uh took us scuba diving and piano lessons at an early age and so i the way they influenced me was and i think my sister also is we're very driven to accomplish accomplish things which only lately have i started to understand that there's other options besides being driven to accomplish and there's things like enjoying life or just to be a kind person like really valid endeavors but those things never really really brought in our house 
Uh, and it was not really on Kirif. It was like, because he was sort of a product of the 50s and very sexist. And he didn't care what his daughter did. He didn't expect much from his daughter, but his son, he expected. And I always felt like nothing less than Beethoven or Freud or or uh, Darwin or <laughs> had to be something. And it's a, it's a sort of a pathology that I've, um, you know, had to sort of, that's, that was the, the really probably the big influence of, and I see it in Kira too. Kira was more, you have to take me seriously. I am your offspring. Just because I'm a woman doesn't mean I'm not the same. And um, so we have this very, both of us, driven personalities. Yes, I could imagine you were hothoused, weren't you, really? You were sort of, you were an experiment of... Hothoused flowers that I would say were not ever completed because my parents got divorced, a very messy, messy divorce when I was about... 13 and Kira was about 10. It was very messy and we split and our circumstances drastically changed. So it was kind of like I was groomed and groomed and groomed to probably to spend a life in academia or something and then just dropped in Los Angeles to become punk rockers. Blimey. So, that yeah. is, that's not the, not, not the best. best oh, it's the best. No, it's the best. It's the greatest. <laughs> I didn't want to spend my life in academia. I'm glad I, I couldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I brought all these fierce tools into, you know, I feel like punk rock and rock and roll needs uh, also needs uh, people with rigor. That's what's, you know, I like that. I, well, I'm not a big fan of the um, just get, get wasted and get stoned and sex, drugs and rock and roll. I think that actually um, these days I'm starting to think that was kind of a, a wrong turn, sex, drugs and rock and roll. I like the people with rigor that took it very seriously and really, really took themselves seriously. You know, I'm, I'm good with that. Yes. I mean, well, I, don't, I, I remember doing an interview with JJ French from Twisted Sister and he was, he's of a work ethic, isn't he? Which is quite sort of, he, it seemed very strong, you know, during the seventies of trying to get the band going and getting rejected, but kept going and going and going. And yes, just, just had that kind of real thing about sort of working really hard, which I think, I think slightly different from American bands to British bands, actually. I it's a, it's an interesting one. I think we're slightly lazy in the UK, and if it doesn't come that easily with too too little without much effort, then we're just going to give up. Whereas Americans <laughs> Americans do try a lot harder, actually. And, and I don't sort know. Of... I mean, Bowie tried and tried and tried. He had every reason to 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 throw in the towel after s several you know failures. And I think the Beatles were hardworking in. Uh, in um you know the, when they went to hamburg you know but uh i think it's i mean i know it's a gross generalization but and hey it doesn't matter the british music is just as great as the american music you know so whether you're lazy or, or a workaholic i think some of the workaholics get a little precious i mean i think frank zappa is a worth workaholic and i have a great admiration for frank zappa but i think if he would have shot a little heroin, it might have helped him. And the same with Jacob Collier. Jacob Collier, absolutely one of my most brilliant musicians I've ever, you know, found in my in my life. But I feel like he needs some sorrow and some suffering and maybe even some laziness to or some sort of living that would temper his brilliance. Yes. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned, you mentioned that idea of being um, damaged because I remember there was a club in Liverpool called Eric's that in the sort of 70s punk period. And um, it was one of those ones where I suppose there was a meeting of lots of people and it was just the right time. 
right place at the right time with all these people who <clears throat> formed various bands who then went on to be Frankie Goes to Hollywood or Bill Drummond who the KLF and there was the guy from Lightning Seeds and Echo and the Bunnymen and Julian Cope and Jane Casey was there and I remember an interview where she said you know we all wore our sort of neurosis on stage you know we were all sort of messed up and we sort of but we had this club and we had this stage that we could just be as crazy as we could and it kind it did it did work but I think in a way you yeah, a bit like you mentioned with Bowie. I mean, he spent the sixties kind of trying and failing quite, quite spectacularly, really. And I, I just watched that film, Love You Till Tuesday, and he's thinking, God, this came out in nineteen sixty, was it sixty seven, sixty nine? I was thinking, what were you doing, David? This was the most bizarre thing. You know, you had, you know, Hendrix, Jefferson Airplane, The Beatles, The Stones, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. and then you had this kind of. It was like wow, that was, I didn't see that. Didn't see what came, was coming next at all, did we? Really? So it's um, yeah, it's an interesting one, really. And he had the damage. He had the bro the damage from his brother, and he had, you know, he could have drawn on that, but he was still. It, it really took the cocaine and maybe even Angie, uh, something, something um, knocked him out, and he he morphed. You he know, morphed. He, he did. He's, he it's really kind did. of. I think he had an amazing curiosity with other art forms, though, didn't he? He had his Lindsay Kemp, he had his kind of performance theatre people, and I think he had that family life that he really wanted to escape from, and I think that was kind of a massive factor, so um, vaguely. So then you were sort of a talented keyboard player with classical kind of chops, and then then what happens during the, the mid-'70s when you get to the age of 16, that kind of... Did you stay on to college, or did you... Um, I, I had I had my prog band and we were working on the 47 minute song and then that just sort of fell apart and I just looked around at rock music and I just didn't see a place for myself and so I went and studied classical music for about a year and right after at Northridge uh, in Los Angeles I was a music major and then right when I went there and I was kind of walking away my friends started the germs and they invited me to a show and there was a band called the Deadbeats, and the Deadbeats were sort of like a punk version of a Captain Beefheart or Frank Zappa. They were they had odd meters and very strange harmonies. And then, of course, there was this. So I I really loved what I was seeing there. The band there was a band called the Weirdos that was just amazing. I became was really a fan. And then there was a band called the Screamers that was looking for a keyboard player. And the Screamers had no guitars or bass. They were just keyboards, drums, and a singer. And um, you know, it was. It was perfect for me, you know. I and so I I joined joined that band, and that was a really popular band in Los Angeles at the time. Yes, it has become sort of um, that that sort of cult band. So, did you at that stage had you sort of rejected all your kind of musical kind of knowledge and and sort of skills to sort of not dumb down, but to sort of use it differently? Yeah, well, for for sure, use it differently. I mean, the screamers. Um, you know, the screamers are basically octaves and fifths because I'm playing through a distorted uh, Fender Rhodes through a distortion. And so I'm really like doing power chords on guitar a lot, sometimes kind of fast. But um, so it was it was still hard to play, but there's very little harmony. But, um, you know, playing at guitar player speeds, punk rock speeds, it was it was still challenging. You know, I couldn't be too snooty about my my classical chops because playing punk rock on keyboards was pretty hard you know actually i had to really stay focused and keep my wits about me and i was kind of generating most of the noise along with the drummer the other keyboard player was doing more washes synth washes and more color stuff so uh, i i had to i did have to rethink but but i always i mean really early on i always wanted to um 
I thought that one of the main things about punk rock, one of the main cornerstones of its of its ideology was to be authentic. And so I knew that I really could not deny my past. And I also think, but if you cut off an arm, then you're a guy with only one arm. You know, you maybe you proved a point, but you know, I would rather be the guy with two arms. So I've always tried to try to find a way to integrate, you know, either either through, you know, it has to be more subtle, but I still like to throw in odd meters or or some sort of dissonant harmonies. I find that traditional harmony um, to me sounds kind of um, cheesy. And, uh, you know, the more advanced jazz harmony gets, the more like like uh, lounge music it sounds in a way for me, to me. So while I, it's very complicated and difficult, it's not a fascination for me to bring Thelonious Monk harmonies into uh into into punk music so that didn't really work but but technique and just not being lazy and being um uh i mean sometimes in the screamers there would be things where the left hand would be doing a very independent thing from the right hand which is really hard to do like i'm kind of doing a bass line with the left hand in a in a you know whole tone scale and the right hand's doing something else so while it may not sound as obvious as a as a rachmaninoff piano concerto or something it was all I could handle, you know. Yes. I, I, <laughs> I always remember sort of Rick Wakeman explaining his kind of piece on life on Mars and how he takes that quite differently where the obvious, you know, he David didn't want him to play where he thought he would going to go. He sort of changes the tempo and the key. And it's like, and that's the thing that makes it so special. It's that kind of those little details, isn't it, which suddenly gives well, something such on- an iconic sound. You talk about prog music. Life on Mars uses just about every chord there is that you can invent. There's, there is he. It's it's, and I noticed it in some other songs that you would notice with David Bowie. And I don't know exactly how he does it, but Life on Mars has got a lot of chords. You know, it's not something you can kind of just jam along to. So, and I remember Wakeman talking about that. He's like he wanted to do something a little bit flowery, but um, but you know you're confronted that's like oh my god david how did you even come up with that because it's not a simple song no both songs are very interesting harmonically uh but then I've, then I've then i've learned that the the world of the carpenters and burt backrack is equally as complicated as well when people go to play them it's like actually these are really quite complicated tracks aren't they they're not they are it's annoying it's because <laughs> i'm not i'm not a super like I've worked very hard and I've studied very hard, but some people that stuff comes very naturally and it doesn't come very naturally to me. It really doesn't. And so um, it's really annoying to hear these really simple, simple Burt Backrack songs or, and think you could sit down and pl- and just realize, I-, I don't even know what he's doing. Where somebody get me the sheet music. Yes. So with the screamers, there isn't a lot of kind of studio time with the band that, you know, it's obviously a live band. How come you didn't sort of record an album with them? Well, we did do some um, demo recording, um, but I know the thought at the time, this was 1978, um, the thought at the time was that the Screamers music could never translate to radio, and radio was the only way to break music music back then. I mean, they weren't even playing, you listen to the Sex Pistols now, and it's kind of like just sort of generic rock and roll in a way with a guy howling over the top of it. But the screamers' music was was pretty off the wall, and I think they just felt that there was sort of a futility to it. The interesting about the screamers is I don't think they were ever that fascinated with being a band. It was really a stepping stone. I think the guys in the screamers, I think Tomato wanted to be an actor, 
And I think the guys, the screamers wanted to create something like a, a production house or something where they could make movies, videos and MTV didn't exist yet. Yes. So I think we kind of wanted to create a studio and a business and a, um, an art factory. And the band was kind of, and you know, it's so funny, like Bowie, who is very contrived and yet feels, feels so um, sincere in a way. And yet he's not sincere. He's not speaking from himself. He's not confessional at all. I don't think Bowie. And, but sometimes those people just do the best work. They're removed from their art. They're not worried about their feelings particularly. And they just, uh, you know, cut and paste together something really, really strong with that. I'm, I'm a, um, I'm a romantic composer. I'm a, a confessional songwriter. I'm a person that writes from my life because those are, that's where I find um, emotional connection, but people mm. like Bowie and the screamers somehow are able to create very emotional music and they're completely at a remove. So I find that kind of fascinating. Yes. There is kind of an abstract kind of um, style, I suppose. Yeah. Bowie's kind of, you know, the lyrics when you were, they they're so iconic, but then at the same time you think I'm not quite sure what they mean, but they they sound good, don't they? You know they 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 capture a sort of a magic realism almost. Of uh... I mean, occasionally he'll tell you, well, I was reading this book by, and you'll go, that's what you were, you know. I remember it was, I think it was Station to Station. He goes, all everything in that is from the Kabbalah, you know. So, and I remember Robert Smith once was talking about one of his songs. It was some beautiful, lovely song. It just sounded like he was brokenhearted about his girlfriend, and he said, oh, that's actually from a. Uh, you know, the writings, I don't even Baudelaire, you know, somebody. So sometimes these people, they're working on their 10th or their 15th record. And I've had to do this too. And you realize, what am, what am I going to write about? And then you just pick up the nearest thing you've been reading and that turns into, you know, a song. You you jumble yes. it up. Well, I think with, yeah, Robert Smith, was it Killing an Arab? Was that Camus? He used to took well, that Camus, yeah. That's yeah. Camus. And then Morrissey and the Smiths, I mean, he was always borrowing some really, you know, there was a woman called, um, oh, Elizabeth Smart, I, some sort of book called I Sat Down at Central Station and Wept. And he kind of borrowed, and there was a film called Taste of Honey, and he borrowed kind of quite a few lines from that and then sort of mixes them with a few other his sentiments, and they become these classic iconic moments, really, which is quite interesting. So, look, as, as the sort of the late 70s progressed into the 80s, in the UK, you know, we had obviously you know, the, the great political turning of kind of Margaret Thatcher appearing and then this conservative government, which was quite, had quite an ethos. And then we had the Falkland War, then we had the miners' strike, then we had Greenham Common, we thought we were all going to die of a, a nuclear war. So what was, what was it like in America at this stage for you in this sort of that transition time? Well, I will, well, so we had Reagan starting in 1980 and there was also a shift, um, but we also had, a, a unlike, England, perhaps, I mean, immense explosion of wealth, I think, and horrible, conspicuous consumption and Wall Street gluttony. But um, most of my friends were um, absolutely poverty stricken. I had two children. And um, I mean, I played with Nina Hagen in the beginning of the 80s and I did some tours. So I was I did OK for that. But I kind of quit that band and uh, and I didn't make any money doing music for years. I continued to make it. But um, uh uh, I think that a lot of us were too poor to give a shit about uh, about some of the bigger those bigger things, or or maybe it just felt like we were really struggling to survive. And um, I think a lot, um, you know, um, I know in America the uh, in, in in after I was in Nina Hagen and I got back, the big band that was was sort of really making a mark was Black Flag. 
and Black Flag had a label called SST, and they um and I was really fat. That was right near my house, so I started hanging out with them. I got in a band with uh, Des Kadena called DC Three, and and my sister got in Black Flag, and you know, the Meat Puppets and the Minutemen. You know, when people talk about the '80s bands. And I don't know what they're talking about. They're talking about really hideous music that I don't listen to, mostly with drum machines. And and not that I don't like drum machines, but new what I call new wave, what a lot of people are into. To me, the 80s were the Minutemen, Black Flag, the Meat Puppets, uh, some of the SST bands like that. Um, um, and then I, you know, then I discovered the cure way later. I, I thought the cure was this whiny um um pop band. And suddenly one day I completely, and everybody said, you should really listen to The Cure. And one day I just said, oh, I love Robert. <laughs> and then I listened, <laughs> I listened to nothing but The Cure for five years. Yeah, so that, well, that was the 80s for me. God, and I had two, two small kids. My um, younger, my older son was born in 81. My younger son was born in 83. And when you have two children, it occupies a fair amount of territory in your brain. Well, it does, absolutely. And it was interesting you mentioned about the prog bands, because what I've sort of discovered and you probably discovered it even more that there's kind of almost especially with popular music there's almost a, like a five-year chapter where you know something happens and then those bands you know what a lot of bands this is a sweeping statement you know they have that 12 month 18 month honeymoon I wouldn't say a honeymoon in a romantic way but you know practice and practice and they get the single you know we had a DJ in this country called John Peel who loved the kind of new music and the most obscure bands he could find he'd play it they'd get John Peel session things going well then they get the next album they'd get their little tour bus and you you realize that the UK is really tiny but everything you know you can just go to all these little towns play their alternative indie night on a Monday Tuesday or Wednesday and things are going really well the set you know the band you know they're getting the, a certain audience and then the second album then possibly the third and by then they're sort of a bit burnt out and that next wave of fans like the next wave of 16 18 year olds are coming along and they kind of want their they want to discover the their bands you know the people who are just about to break it and those other ones become quite bloated it doesn't have to be yes and genesis and and jethro tull it can just be like the smiths or you know i just all these indie bands i've interviewed from the 80s you know it's like they get to about 80 87 88 and it's a bit like yeah you know ecstasy comes along in this country you know and suddenly ecstasy you know this is again really sweeping but you know they there's a different soundtrack there's a different drug there's a different sensation and people want to dance suddenly and in the early 80s there was a huge amount of kind of unemployment in this country and there was the kind of the the right which had all the money and then the left, which had no money, and we were all scraping by on very little. So there's this huge kind of gap in, in society. So I think that plays, that does play a massive part, you know, and keeping on the zeitgeist is quite difficult at this stage. Yeah, I, it's really fascinating. Uh, I'm on, I'm going to be 65 this year. So, um, you know, there's this great surrender. One of the temptations is to disparage the new and um, and say, well, um, you know, back in my day, we had the great music, you know, and what I always like to remind everybody is this is the best time for music there has ever been. I promise you, because there's so many more people doing it and they've listened to all the music from the last 50 years and they go on YouTube and figure out how to play guitar. And then they, and, and I know it because they walk into my studio and I record them. And not only are they kids doing incredible, unbelievable, my, my son sends me a new band once a week and I, i'll check them out and i'll go amazing on every level 
fresh, unique, committed, brilliant, you know, every week there's a new one. And, um, and on top of that, this other syn syn syndrome, which I think is really fascinating, six-year-old musicians who've been working their whole lives have nothing to prove and have had jobs now. And they walk into my studio and they go, I want to make an album. And we make a record and halfway through the record, I go, this is incredibly good. I mean, is it just because I'm biased because I'm helping with it? But it happened over and over again. And the thing is, it makes perfect sense. They're doing it for all the right reasons. They've got all this experience and, and they're not doing it to make money or to impress anybody. They're making a pure work of art from their heart. So I find that a fact, like the example that is sort of, I think, uh, is a mainstream example would be um, Nick Cave doing Ghost Team. You know, uh, the album yes. that he did. You know, it's a beautiful album. And the guy does not care that whether, um, you know, uh, birthday party fans like it. He's 60 something years old and he's not he's trying to do what's what he believes now. He's not. And then there's many artists that go out and do the same music. I mean, I think of Trent Reznor, who I thought was in a really, really great talent. And I have to say, I haven't really kept up on his music to say this, but I had a feeling that after several albums, he was still full of hate and anger. And he was, I feel like, haven't you figured anything out? Are you, are you pandering to your fans? Haven't you found now you're, you're you have money. You have, you can do anything you want. Haven't you found any piece or do you, are you afraid you'll lose your audience if you make music that way? Or have you been unable to evolve into a way where you can make, where you can make a sincere statement of beauty without it appearing maudlin or or insincere you know because i think that's a real challenge that's a challenge as an artist to age and to not repeat yourself and to be honest about where you are in life you know my last record a lot of the last record is like hey i'm old i'm dying i'm gonna be dead you know and 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 what is that like because yes. that's all we have to sing about I know this is this is true. I know we we have to face these things. What does what does an artist have to sing about now? It's kind of yeah, interesting. Sixteen year old is not going to care. Does that mean I have to write something for them? I can't. They've got their own artists. They do. I know. Well, that's why you know when we listen to Black Star, it's like oh, that's what you sing about when you get a bit older, and um, and and still make it sound sincere and interesting. But what was quite interesting on some of those points you made because I remember in the eighties being obsessed with the Smiths because they were my band and playing it to my boss who had been in the sixties world of Hendrix and the Grateful Dead and seeing Cream and loving and the Who he was upset and I'd play him the Smiths and he just didn't get it and I thought oh actually that's that's right you know you don't often people don't really get it and I I just assume that I, I accept that I'm the the old person who hasn't got their finger on the zeitgeist anymore when I when I see there's a gig you know I don't know there's a festival going on in our city in a couple of months time and there's got some events at sort of I don't know 10 o'clock or 11 o'clock I'm thinking I'm not sure if I'm the target market anymore I mean I might be but at the same time you know it's not quite my focus anymore so I, I you know I accept that you know the next generation come along and I'm sure what they're doing is amazing it has the same impact and same excitement as I had um, but I'm just I'm the old dude at the at the gig you know that kind of syndrome when you were young you went hey, who's the old person and it's like oh yeah we all become that person one day don't we so you have to well, it, I was playing with a band with Rick Agnew and Jaton Damone from Christian Death called the Jaton Damone Quartet. And I consist we were playing with some young bands, but I consistently noticed in Los Angeles mixed audiences of older people and young kids. I thought it was, you know, 
as boomers or, you know, in the 60s, uh, you know, you don't trust anyone over 30 and it was generational war. And that's kind of silly. It's a, it's It was a very, very romantic idea at the time, but it's actually a very silly idea because really the old and the young should unite against power. <laughs> yes, this is true. This is true. So when just to, we're talking about creative things and, and I mentioned you know, like, you know, I don't know, the Smiths and Morrissey. I mean, when he was singing in the sort of 80s, he seemed like, and I, I've spoke to a few of my musicians and artists about this, you know, what what is the creative moment and what makes it kind of pure and beautiful? And, and when people become slightly, like you talk about Trent, you know, thinking, well, you know, yeah, you definitely felt authentic then. And now you just feel like, are you quite so authentic or are you just pretending to be kind of angry and I found that a little bit with some people like Morrissey is like there was a genuine feeling of like that's how you were feeling alienated poor poverty stricken and now the sentiments just sound a bit bitter and and unpleasant now they, there is there is something kind of like god you're just a bit of a bitter old man now whereas then you just seem like one of us you know a, a rather lost young person on stage waving your gladioli about and I, I, I suppose it's having that kind of creative honesty as an artist to, that makes your best work compared to sort of just sounding a bit like, no, that just sounds a bit like you've become a bit unpleasant, really. Well, the question is, <laughs> has he changed? Um, has he gotten more bitter and less open-minded? Was there a was there a green, uh, living, uh, inspired child in his early work that has that has been lost? Um, or is it the same thing and it just doesn't age well? Um, and I don't I don't really want to say that about Trent. I had that feeling about Trent, but I would like to listen to some of his news music because I actually have faith in Trent Reznor. I, I I believe that I could find new with and I'm I just I believe that what I said might not be true, but I just haven't been exposed to it. But I think it's really uh the death of the death of creativity, a real, real challenge is success. Um, when you have success um, and you're making a living and you own a house or you own three houses or you own seven houses, whatever your station that you've gotten to through your art and uh, you hire 40 people for your tours and they're all counting you to hire them for the next tour. And, um, you know, this fear comes in about losing, you know, about not being, uh, losing your your livelihood or having to downsize your livelihood or you're having your fans turn on you. And it's very legitimate. And if that's, I mean, how many people are able to continue to be, you know, really creative once that's happened? I know it's a real challenge. I actually am somewhat grateful that I was spared that. I mean, I'm living a comfortable life. I have my own recording studio. I work very hard, but um, uh, I don't have fans, uh, uh, millions of fans that are going to either turn on me. My God, being a celebrity is horrible, you know, especially in the age of social media. I mean, just read the comments section. There will be there may be 50 fans that say lovely things about you, but then there's going to be 50 fans, 50 fans or ex-fans or just haters saying the most horrible, loathsome things about you. I mean, yes, uh, I, I could imagine <laughs> that that kind of being a difficult one. So with your studio, when did you decide to make that kind of change from I'm going to be a you know, want to be in the band because you you've played with so many different people, haven't you, over the decades? Yeah. And then and you I, still, I still do, I still do, but I always made home recordings, and I think always from the time I was about fourteen or fifteen years old, just about every move I've ever made and every decision I've ever been made ever made 
was with the goal of being able to have a studio time <laughs> so I could record. Um, so it used to be get some indie label to put us in the studio to record. And I did that for a while. And then I had a series of eight tracks in my house. And eight tracks was kind of good enough. And I did eight tracks obsessively through the 90s when we were almost to the 90s. And if you were going to talk about the 90s, I would say I missed the 90s. I was locked I was working as a construction worker in the daytime and I was locked in these eight track studio in my garage every, every moment. And I just released all that music last year, um, four double albums of it. Um, so, uh, uh, so everything was to eventually have a recording studio. And, um, so finally my friend Geza X and my other friend, Josie Cotton had a recording studio and Geza was a well-known producer and I'd played in bands with him, but he just didn't want to be sitting in the chair anymore because it's very grueling and he wanted to start to move away. So he kind of threw me into his chair to start uh, engineering. And it was all with the goal. Well, then I'll in the in nighttime when everybody leaves, I can work on my own stuff. And so that was a studio up in Malibu. And then in 2011, um, we closed that one down and we built this one in um, this one that I'm sitting in now. Uh, we built this in 2011 and i've basically just been sitting in this room are you in la much. yes yes very close to ground zero right near right near downtown los angeles right because <clears throat> i think last year i did an interview with a guy who was in a band called is it pulsars a guy called dave um is it trumfila trumfila called he's got a sort of a the king size sand labs where he's got studio and kind of hotel all put together into uh, one one but you haven't come across that guy uh you know things go through my brain and they're if they if they if they're not useful then they they quickly uh go out the other side of my ears so i may have but i you'll you'll ask this probably again and i'll go i don't know <laughs> don't worry. the worst no. that ever the worst that ever happened was i ran into some guy at a show and he's like paul how are you doing and i'm like hey you who are you again and he's like <laughs> I was in a band with you. <laughs> I was like, oh my God. Yes. So uh, so the commitment of making a studio, I mean, that must have been quite a big kind of step. Was that a relief to sort of move away from thinking I could still be in a band one day to, no, this is going to be my focus for the next 10 years? Well, my dreams were shattered back around 1987. In 1987, I think I put out, I all through the 80s, I was getting all these studios. I was putting out an album on SST and I was putting out an album on on CD Presents, and I was working with Mike Watt in a band called Crime, and I was in DC, I was doing all this stuff, and it all came out in 87, and I thought, when this happens, people are going to really think I'm a big deal, and it was nothing, <laughs> so at that point, I had to start thinking, well, how am I going to support my kids, and I never was really able to get a real job, I just kind of did odd jobs, but the odd jobs were kind of and then every once in a while, I get a, you know, I get a gig, I played with a guy named Mark Curry, who was on Virgin Records, or I get some tours, but you know, um, so I, I never, it's been quite a while since I, um, there was a long period, probably, uh, well, 15 or 20 years when I kind of, it didn't look like I was ever going to be able to make a living doing music really. And then around, uh, 2003 to 2004, they, you know, they really had me working full-time at the studio and was it a relief? Well, I just, that when I was doing those other jobs, I felt like I was, and I, you know, sometimes I think back about painting houses and I go, God, that was nice. It was quiet and I would be working outside and it was so relaxing, but it wasn't, it was hellish. I tortured myself every minute thinking that this is not 
what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm supposed to be like my dad one. I'm supposed to be a great genius and my life is slipping through my fingers. So, so yes, there was a relief to know that I could, um, all this stuff that I had sort of demoed out, all these ideas that I hadn't been able to realize I would eventually be able to, as well as I could, you know, make decent versions and, and, you know, throw them out into the world for, for whatever. And then every once in a while, you know, a couple people will hear a song and it will mean something important to them. You know, yes. that's, 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 uh, that means a lot. Of, uh, I have a couple friends, the last album I did, and they'll say something like, um, they'll say something like, I can't stop listening to it. And, and I know like when you have a record that you can't stop listening to, that's like a kind of bliss, isn't it? Yes. It's a kind of bliss in this world where there's so little bliss. When you find a a piece of music that you just listen to over and over because it just moves you so much. So, you know, if I can, if I've given a handful of people that kind of bliss and every once in a while, someone will tell me that and I'll feel like, wow, you know, and I mean, I just like the other kind of bliss of look at me, I'm at the top of the charts and now I can read thousands of people saying horrible things about me or kissing my ass and telling me how great I am. It, it, it no longer has the same allure. Um, yes, it never had like... that much allure. It had a little allure. It has a lot less. It has very little allure now. Were you able to sort of have a little bit of kind of help and emotional support with your sister, Kira, at that stage? Because she'd obviously gone through quite a, a kind of a weird and rough period being the bassist in in Black Flag, you know, and and I spoke to her and, you know, it, it sounded quite rough at times and quite mean. I just wondered I mean, if you... You're, you have to remember that Black Flag was either on tour or rehearsing every single day and she was going to UCLA full time to get a degree in computer science and business. So Kira, for that period of time, was it was we would talk very rarely, you know, she was so uh and I, I, I always want to point out that that's one of the most amazing accomplishments. I think uh, uh, the one of the greatest accomplishments of sheer, sheer endurance and willpower to be able to be a woman in Black Flag and be going to UCLA at the same time is is just incredible. And then after that, you know, she um she went out, uh, she moved to New Haven, and she was kind of away a lot. It's really only in the last. Uh, 10 years that we've really started doing a lot of music together and I play in her band now. Um, and we, we see each other a lot more, you know, yes. we have a constant text thread that's going on with my son and her about basketball every day. I'll get 50 texts about basketball. Um, you know, so it's really the last 10 years. It was, we, when I was going through my hardest time while she did try to be helpful at times. And when she was going through her hardest time, we weren't able to be of great help to each other. You know, it's a sad, but it's wonderful to really, truly be reunited with her now. Yes. Yes, that is that is something. Did you did you all did you have a drug dependency at this stage at that stage back then? So in, in 1993, my wife was a really severe uh, drug addict, methamphetamine addict. And I was we had two kids. So I was always trying to, like, throw her needles in the trash and flush her drugs down the toilet and. I was bailer out of jail and I was like Mr. Goody Goody guy trying to uh trying to um keep the family together. In 1993, I was like I was losing this battle. I was losing the battle. We were living in absolute chaos. And I thought, you know, if I got on the drugs too, she wouldn't have to lie to me and I could be on the inside of this thing. And I think I can manage it. And I think I can it I think that 
if it's not me trying to control her, I think it'll it'll be better than it is now. And now the other options would have been to leave her or to take the kids and go, but I really couldn't figure out how to do that. I didn't want to do my parents had gotten divorced at around the same time. And I didn't want to do that to my to my kids. Um, so I made this really, really crazy decision to be a drug addict, you know, and it was um and out of that, um, and it 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 actually in many ways it it really worked because uh, we did stop fighting and we did stop the bank. The money did stop disappearing out of my account, you know, and, and things um, did settle down. And I sort of had a creative breakthrough because I was, it was also around the same time as I was doing these construction jobs and I'd come home from work at five o'clock and be so exhausted. I couldn't drag myself to band practice or into the studio. And I thought this is going to give me, you know, the endurance to do the stuff I can't do. This probably sounds like a lot of rationalization and justification, but uh, it was all very, very reasoned and thought out and logical. And um, I was on methamphetamine from about 93 to 2000, uh, early 2002. Right. And I've been, I've been sober since then. My God, that's, that's quite something. Did you become quite damaged at that stage during that period? Oh, I was damaged when I stopped. I was damaged when I stopped because there's uh there's brain chemistry issues and there's you know I I I it was uh during it I mean I have to say the worst chaos this is going to sound crazy the worst chaos was before I did it because I was in such a um uh, it was so emotionally destructive to be in that that marriage as it stood with me trying to be the hero and her trying to her being the identified patient was uh, a very very toxic and actually it 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 actually did settle things down and help uh i um don't have terrible memories of that period um uh particularly creatively because i listened to the music i did before and it's a little precious i i hear my I, um i hear myself grow up and um I hear my soul um, being transformed in the furnace through that. And um, so uh, was I damaged? I mean, for sure I was very damaged before already, though. Yes. You know? How did you manage to sort of come out of that period? Because because often it's the problem is being in the environment of something that's so difficult. And I've been aware that, you know, the people that you hang with have such a huge influence even if you i mean i can tell you exactly my kids had gotten old enough to know and my kids had gotten old enough to start to want to do drugs and um and it was really clear to me that while i thought i could handle this these drugs from in inside of me from my inner life i could handle these drugs but on the outside in the world my being on drugs was having an effect outside on my kids so i had to see I had to look outside of myself. Now I was doing the drugs to 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 medicate the inside. When yes. I didn't understand that by medicating the inside, I wasn't helping the outside. The outside was going to hell, even though I was feeling better. So then it had to be a decision. Well, okay, I may never do music again. Um, I may never be happy again or feel good again. But I cannot um, continue to be an example of a drug addict with two children in the house. And um, and how I did it was, you know, I mean, I went to 12-step meetings. Right. You know, that, that, maybe not for everybody, but for me and for um, many people I know, many musicians and many, I mean, I know David Bowie was a, 
a big 12-step guy, as you know. Yes, him and Tony uh, Visconti would go off and do their thing. He was very open about it. You know, he he was very open about it uh, at a certain points in his career. He's so uh, I like to I I like to throw that out there for people who reach a point where they're like, I can't go on and I can't stop, and I don't know what possible catalyst can make a change happen. And in my life, it was knowing people that had done it in twelve step groups and going, okay, I give up. I hate the idea of this. I, I absolutely hate the idea of this, but. It's working for Jack and it's working for, you know, Robbie and it's working for them. So I'm just going to shut up and just do what they do and see what happens. And, you know, then while the insides didn't change drastically, the insides, there was a lot of suffering and pain, but the outsides began changing almost immediately. Yes. And how did your wife or partner, did she go through the same process or was that just not going to happen? Um, she went through something similar, but she, she, um, you know, I, I kind of, she was kind of cleaning up and going in and going out. But eventually, after I'd been sober about three years, I realized that, um, so it's interesting about family dynamics. If you studied the nature of addiction in the family, it, it, it the damage lasts much longer. So me getting sober did not suddenly fix everybody. It, it took, it actually took me leaving that family, I believe. Uh, about three and a half years after I got sober, I left that family. And, um, you know, I'm still close to very, very close to all of them. And I love them. But the 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 enmeshment was was so um, toxic. It wasn't it just wasn't um, other the rest. Everybody wasn't getting well. And I I, I moved away. And about three years after that, um, after I left, uh, then it really kicked in for them as well. Right. Now I, I can really say that all of us survived this really really rough period and i by the way not to do like a, a plug here but i did uh, um i did uh i recorded all the music during that period and i i packed put it all together in four albums called the drug years and i just put it out um on um bandcamp and it's kind of interesting people probably imagine this horrible tweaker music you know but it's really a lot of it's like elton john and you know just like the kind of you know nine inch nails or elton john and and I've re-recorded a lot of it, but um, it's almost like a diary of that period. It's a lot of the observations. You know, let's face it, methamphetamine. You know, your your synapses are really firing at a red hot level, and in in some ways, um, you know, some very intense insights and stuff came out of that period. And if I didn't feel that way, I would never have released it all. But yes. I took 20, I took twenty years. And I polished it and I remixed it and I re-recorded some of the songs and finally I said, you know, during COVID, I was like, I could get COVID and die or I could stroke out tomorrow and, uh, and it's never going to be perfect, but I want to just um, make it all available. So I put out my sort of musical diary of the drug years on on Bandcamp, if anybody's. Mm -hmm. Did that? Well. Yes, I'll, I'll check that out. Did um did that help you also process that period as well, having that kind of moment of, Absolutely. you know. Absolutely. Because, you know, in the daytime, I was a I was a construction worker, handyman with a drug addict wife and two young kids. And I was incredibly poor at nighttime. I was Zeus making the music was just pouring through me. And and I could I could absolutely process. Um, I remember one time my wife said, um, you know, nobody likes you. You have no friends and nobody likes you. And um, and she she insulted me so. And I, I went out. And it turned into it instantly turned into this beautiful song about how 
how important um, it is to have human contact. You know, um, like the idea of, um, you know, we're supposed to all be very independent and we're supposed to be, you know, but but really no one's independent. Really, we're all entwined. And, and it's so, yes, th that music is what was at my absolute focus, you know, to keep me to keep me um, joyous, really passionate and joyous through that period. Blimey, the drug years. It's the 12 steppers and dead junkies, part one. And yeah, Fireman. The drug years as well. God, yeah. that's that's an extraordinary diary. So so a lot of people use the the lockdown as a sort of a way to do processing and archiving and going into their loft and you know finding stuff and writing memoirs. So your period as well had an equally sort of creative time of tidying stuff up, taking stock. Because you also you record a new album, isn't it? The turn into the bright world. I had been working on that since I got into this studio, really. Uh, but I mean, oof, you know, I, someone told me it's not good to say you worked on a record for eight years or 10 years or 20 years. But like, you know, I was doing others. I wrote a 21 minute song called Galatea that, you know, I would produced 40 bands or something in that time. So I was kind of constantly working on the turning of the bright world. And one of the reasons it didn't it took so long was it was just a collection of songs to me. It didn't strike me as a unified album, which is really my art form. My art form is the album, not the song, um, I, I, which is a very obsolete art form now. It's not nobody sits through a 40 minute piece. Anyone that's like more of what we we're talking about before. We're, we're old codgers that do things that in a way that is no longer you know, I watch TikTok with my wife and they're 15 seconds and they're fun and they get out in and out. <laughs> Great. But I still compose big pieces and major big works because so I, uh, I've been turning the bright world. Just it just seemed like a collection of songs. And then uh, we went up to the, the the poppy bloom and Rachel took that picture of me on the cover. And I sort of saw I sort of I sort of saw what the album was about, you know, and the songs sort of I threw out a bunch of songs that I didn't want to use. And I put in the songs I didn't want to use. And and it sort of came together, but I had been working on it for a while. And yeah. I got to tell you, through the pandemic, the studio did not slow down. Um, you know, the rules for the lockdown was after two weeks, it was no gatherings of more than five people. That was what it really, a lot of people wore masks and huddled and wouldn't go anywhere. But a lot of my work is with one other artist at a time. And the first week someone dropped off about a hundred dats and asked me to digitize them all a hundred dats. It was probably 30 hours of music and asked me to master all of it. He was archiving. Right. So I immediately got this massive job. By the time I was done with that, somebody else said, Hey, I've recorded an album in lockdown. Could you mix it? And they send that to me. And, you know, it, it didn't slow down a tremendous amount. You know, things, a lot of people were doing things remotely and virtually. Yes, and absolutely. They did. And with, you know, just curious, actually, on that cover of, of the turning of the bright world, where did you capture it and what what does it symbolize? I was just curious. Well, so we went up and did, she was taking pictures of me. We took a lot of pictures and and all of them were bad. And she's an amazing photographer. And uh, and I didn't like any of them. And that one was just a Polaroid that she caught as we were getting ready to get into the car. And, um, you know, the turning, the, a lot of the album I was talking about is kind of like the idea of death is so ubiquitous and so inevitable. And yet we, it is like in people's minds, it's sort of the essence of evil in a way. And I really was like the idea of, you know, if you could really celebrate and just let go of 
of this fear and this sense and, and, and celebrate it a little bit. And I noticed when I was looking through songs, because when I write songs, it's very subconscious. I'll write the music and I'll go out and I'll go, and I'll just sing melodies. And then I'll go, now, what am I saying there? Oh, there's a, there's a A and a P and gradually like these words sort of swim up and it takes, it's exhausting and it takes hours and hours and hours and hours. And I don't know what the song is going to be. And, and the wisdom of the song is from my subconscious and from the music, the, um, the um, integrity of the music and the, the emotion and the, the wisdom of the music. And so um, I had to step back afterwards and go, well, what are these songs really singing about? And a lot of them were really um, sensing my impending death and feeling very, very accepting of it. You know, so that picture on the cover, you know, uh, the turning of the bright world is like, you know, like what we were talking about. We will be gone and the world will go on without us and it'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you've got tracks like you know maker the only thing that matters awake are these yes these all have a a theme don't they a thematic quality well, to especially them. especially elephant man especially the the first i was writing the words to elephant i really love that music it's a free improvisation i just improvise it it doesn't have verses chorus it doesn't repeat and I had this music that I loved and I was sitting there and I was writing these words. I'm like, oh, these words are terrible. They don't mean anything. And, and then finally I realized, oh my God, that's a guy dying. His spot, his spirit is leaving his body and his, his tenses. And he's, it's like his life is flashing before his eyes. So that was really, that's kind of why it's first is really a, and, and then he's accepted, he's in peace with it. You know, he's at peace, he's at peace with it. So, and then maker sort of a really silly silly poppy version of the same theme but then you know i also thought one of the other things about it was like well if you're an old man and you're you're moving on to the next world or or to nothingness do you have anything to leave behind is there anything that you actually are there any conclusions you've come to is there any and i'm very cautious about having beliefs or coming to conclusions i'm against it i'm against having opinions and i'm against any of that because every time i ever have an opinion i am quickly disabused of it and proven that i had my head up my ass which i also <laughs> love but yes you know i'm an old man and do i have anything that i've settled on and and that is a theme that continuously kind of you know the only thing that matters and uh you know, um, shallow shadow complete and awake. There's a bunch of different ones in there that are um, about uh, just philosophical stuff, stuff, different philosophers that I that have resonated with me. Yes, absolutely. And did you um, on the recording process? Obviously, you did, you did most of it or all of it in your studio there. Mm -hmm. Yes, I did all, all of it myself. I mean, I had a couple guest musicians. But most of the songs, I just do it myself. That's kind of how I like to work. I find that my music, when I have a real standard instrumentation, like a guitar player, bass player, and drummer, I feel like my songs suddenly become trite. I don't know why. There's one exception to that, and that's a song called A Quiet Night on the Moon Cam. It's the only song that's really a drummer. We got a drummer and a bass player and a guitar player, and I played piano, and we played the song, and then I had this seven-minute thing, and I was like, now I got to write words to it. And I just sat there for a month trying to, and I was kind of inspired by Bo Burnham. The music, I was kind of inspired by Neil Young, this song, um, uh, Cortez the Killer, where yes. there's this really, really long 
intro that's just awesome it's like nothing is really happening it's not like it's some great guitar so it's just but you just swim in this long intro so i wanted to do that and then bo burnham i've been listening to a lot of bo burnham and, and phoebe bridgers and my god you know what it's like to be 25 or 26 or 27 in 2027 to have been born in 2000 it's a very bleak you're born into a very bleak world apparently partly because of the 24-hour news cycle but you know, and I realized like people like Phoebe Bridgers and Bo Burnham, when they think about their future, they don't think there is one. There's a very pessimistic feeling. And so I'm a I'm a deliberate, intentional optimist because I feel like pessimism is corrosive. And you have to be an optimist, even if you're on your way to the gallows, because it gives you courage, you know. But I decided to I'm going to go ahead and be pessimistic. I'm going to have a, a song of that's the philosophy of that song is pessimism. Right. Yes. This is this is all true. I mean, do you, because it was such a long process, you know, I think did you say you started it in sort of 2014, 2015? Yeah, the earliest songs are from 2014. Did it feel sort of trying to sort of then bring it together and then sort of put it into an order, you know, a playlist? Did that feel quite tricky? Sort of because obviously you must have changed and so much had changed in the world during that time of, you know, there was political well, shifts songs, that were huge yeah but the songs the themes of the songs are are pretty timeless you know they're pretty inward and some of them are very handled um in a sort of a pointillist and fractured way where it's not ob always obvious what's going on so um like i said it took a long time to put together because i didn't have a vision once i had a vision um it wasn't it wasn't that hard once i saw like, okay, this song doesn't, doesn't make, you, you know, I just saw that, okay, the songs together do, they do hold together. They do tell a story, you know? So um, it's always hard to do a, a really uh, exhausting part of the process of an album is finishing it. Yes. The very thing Because man, you're hearing stuff up to the last second, which means that you're going to hear stuff afterwards, <laughs> but you yes. know, this is true. Of course, it's interesting you mentioned that track by Neil Young, Cortez the Killer, because there is something like you when you when you go to play it, you kind of sit down, don't you, thinking that this is going to be a process. This isn't a TikTok moment, isn't it? It's like you're going to go through it. And then there's another track by Gillian Welsh called Time, Times a Revelator. And that again is like this very long process. And to really you know, to really appreciate it and to get something from it you you know you have to sit down clear your diary for the next eight minutes and just kind of go with it till the very end because you kind of miss the point yeah, don't you singing, singing doesn't even start till three minutes into it but you know honestly i i turn it off for the singing because you know those lyrics which were very very revolutionary and woke when he wrote them are actually very dated and very um almost almost racist now you know so um you know, and that's like, you've got a point. You're like, if you don't get the music out there, I remember I had a song in the drug years called Taliban Girl. And no, when I wrote Taliban Girl, nobody had heard of the Taliban. The Taliban were an unknown. You know, I just happened to read a lot of books, you know? So I thought nobody will know what this is about. And now everybody, you know, Taliban Girl, ha ha ha, everybody, you know, gets it. So you, yeah, times change and something, you know, can become can become dated it's true since you're kind of this this kind of the kind of i wouldn't say cleansing but obviously and it's not quite your black star album either but obviously doing your archives with your drug years and then this this kind of album which is captures the last i suppose last eight years of your life 
Does it now, as a person, do you feel like, right, okay, that's clean that? I mean, I know you've got your studio and you've probably got 100 different people sort of squeezing into the diary and and sort of working that out. But do you feel like, right, what what are you going to work on next? You ask the most wonderful questions. You really, you really do. And I really appreciate you for the questions you ask because it's absolutely what I wanted to talk about. And yes, when I put out the drug years, which had been 30 years of work and five hours of music. And then when I put out um, the turning of the bright world, I felt absolutely drained and like I have nothing else to say. I've said everything I want to say and I may never write another song. And then I remembered that I'm in the middle of a project with an artist I'd mentioned before named Chaton Damone, who was in Christian Death and who I've been playing with. And six years ago, she said, I want to do an album of orchestral music. And I was like, that is just a, that's just not a good idea. I just can't imagine that. And we went to a concert and we saw, um, we saw uh, the hosts of planets and it was, oh, God, you know, it, doesn't... it was, it was okay. You know, it's, it's a war horse. It was okay. But the opening act was the debut of a violin concerto by a Icelandic composer named Daniel Bjarnason. So this is a piece that was written in 2017, and it was unbelievable. It made the planets sound like just silly. It was so beautiful and complex and odd and strange. And so I was like, okay, if we're if I'm going to write orchestral music, that's what it's got to be like. I it has to. I cannot be lazy. I can't fall into like. Um, so I worked on it, worked on it. And Purushatan, I was writing this stuff and I was like, nobody can sing to this. This is going to be impossible. I'm deliberately making it not only impossible to learn and to play, but for her to write to. And yet she would she would work hard. She would write 50 or 60 pages of lyrics and distill it down to one thing. And I would help her through it. And, and so tomorrow, she's coming in tomorrow night and she's going to be putting on the final vocals for this piece. It's 28 minutes long. It's in seven sections. And um, and uh, I'm not writing lyrics to it, but I am so freaking proud of it. And and it's it because she's a goth artist. I feel like old goth people will go will um. And it's 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 pretty exciting. It doesn't sound like anything else. I'm only using like only using pianos and violins and instruments. I'm doing it on MIDI. Only instruments that you would hear in a symphony orchestra. But and yet, you know, I worked pretty hard on it and she brought out something out of me that I'm so fucking proud of. Mm. So that, that's the next the next thing. And and I if you would have asked me um, before I got back to working on it, because um, I kind of set it aside, you know, I would have thought I was done. But what she's just really given me a gift because I feel like I'm doing just the best work of my life, honestly. And I don't even have to write the words. And usually I feel like the words are what you know me wanting the right words are really really important to me um and so just to be sitting in the in the background making the music um for her and her really rising to it i'm thrilled yes because you've worked you've obviously collaborated with quite a lot of people but this obviously sounds like a, a much more well not much more but just another really interesting new person a bit like you know I suppose, you know, Bowie used to sort of put, put together these bands and sometimes take a whole band as he did on his last album. But this this sounds like a really interesting new conversation and new narrative and a new kind it's of... Uh... brand new. It's brand new. It doesn't sound like anything. I think, I think Beck put out an album of orchestral stuff years ago. And I remember listening to it and going, and, and I love, I mean, people love Beck. I, I have never really discovered him completely, but I'm sure he's really brilliant. But I remember just not... But this is way more, this is almost, 
like Stravinsky or something, but like, it's like, but, and yet Jatan is singing kind of rock and roll over Stravinsky. If you can imagine a rock and roll singer wailing over Stravinsky, that's kind of, kind of what we're talking about. Yes. Did you, I mean, I mean, I'm not sure because I haven't heard the music, but did you used to get very excited when you used to listen to Funeral for a Friend and Love Lies Bleeding? Was that kind um, of... No, that was not one of my favorite uh, overtures. Uh, I love Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, though. I, th I remember Harmony. I thought there was many beautiful songs. I was a big Elton John fan in the 70s, for sure. But that intro, uh, it didn't give me quite the rush you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I, mean, back, what, what did it? I mean, there's some Emerson, Lake and Palmer doing Jerusalem, maybe. Right. Yes, I know. God, you've you've really you've you've really sort of captured your sort of an essence of your 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 sort of deep in your DNA here, haven't you? My pretentious, pretentious, ponderous essence, which you know, people say talk about being pretentious, and I'm like, is that a bad thing? Well, <laughs> <laughs> it's great. It's great when you go back to the source, isn't it? And obviously, this is part of your source that you've come. You know, that that the kind of where the stream starts, isn't it? It, to a, to an extent, I never had mastery, and it's actually really brand new for me. I've done. People will sometimes ask me to orchestrate, do a, a orchestra on their records, and I've come to learn like, oh, that's what a piccolo's for, and that's what a flute does, and that's what French horns do. I get it now. Slowly, slowly, I figured out like, why do they have so many instruments? Oh, they all do. Say, oh, timpanies, they're actually really important, you know. So I started finally figuring out how an orchestra works together. And um, it's well. And yes, you're right. Uh, I'm recording bands. I mean, I've recorded a band Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, Monday, a band called the Hollywood Stars that are these 74-year-old sunset strip rock and roll guys that are re rediscovering their youth. I mean, just weirdest, the weirdest, strangest projects come in here. And um and I try to give it my heart. There's so many people that um, kind of count on me. They yes. really count on me. Uh, there's an artist called Fido, who is a prog artist that I work with a lot, uh, who's got, it's pronounced, it's spelled P-H-I-D-E-A-U-X. And prog fans may know about him. Um, and uh, a, a lot of people really count on me. Harry Cloud, like um, they, they, they can't necessarily do their art without me you know it's a real responsibility yes this is true going back to your own project that you're working on um how important is kind of space and a sort of stillness sometimes within the music that you're you're currently making because i know i remember sort of being very mesmerized by some of these classical artists who play piano but it's very spacious like but it goes back to people like eric sarty and people like that i just wondered do you sort of struggle sometimes keeping sort of like a stillness and not making it too busy as well with, with your well, latest I'm, project? I'm, some, I'm something of a maximalist, you know, I am not a minimalist. I mean, I've got some, uh, some songs that are kind of very simple pianos, but that's usually a departure for me. I will say that there are spots in this piece. It's a 28 minute piece. There are spots where everything does kind of stop and float and hang. And they're really, because there's a lot of torturous, you know, there's a lot of rise and falls. There's all kinds of stuff, but those moments where it becomes really simple and spare, you 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 know, it just takes your breath away because you've had this huge like things have gotten just as epic as they could get, and then they just go to just like maybe Jatan's voice and 
maybe just a piano or just a, a flute or a slight float. So, yes. um, and yeah, no, you, that's, and how did you get to the um, end and how did you work out? Well, actually you're just working it out, aren't you? I just wondered, cause you were talking about completing an album or completing a song and just thinking it's a 28 minute piece. I'll tell you what it's, I mean, I don't really want to tell people what it's about, but I, when you ask questions, I think you deserve answers. Um, People deserve answers. So Shatan initially came to me and she wanted to write a few of these orchestral pieces about um, the singer from Christian Death, Roz Williams, who hung himself when he was 37. So it's been 30 years and he hung himself. And I was like, this is really interesting because I had a really, really close friend was a huge, uh, made a huge impression on me who committed suicide when he was 22. And that's Darby Crash. We were very, very close friends. So we both had this in common and I go, but you know, it's so tawdry, this idea of, you know, the kid becomes a punk rock star and kills himself. What a, what a trite story. So what we did is we put the funeral in the middle. The death happens in the middle of the piece. So there's this very fast meteoric. And I'll tell you the way Shatan writes words, this is not obvious, but this you're asking about the structure. There's this childhood discovery of the Hollywood scene and this meteoric career and death. And then the, the music changes quite a bit and it becomes the first piece after the death, the funeral is like, you're staring at the grave, talking to him. Like, you know, you could have done this. You could have done this. The, we would have helped you. Like you're talking to him, like it didn't have to be this way. And then she wrote a piece about, um, it's his journal and it's 28 years later and he didn't do it and he's happy and he's in love. And um, so it's really about um, surviving and that it's, that it's not. And what about the people? Everybody loves the story of the martyr that dies young, but that's kind of a failure really. And, and um, what about, and, you know, David Foster Wallace talks about this in the pale King. What about, you know, the heroism of, of living and not, 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 um, you know, trying to be strong um, and help, and not running away, you know, and mm. what is that about? And that, you know, these people that we put on a pedestal that die young, like Jimi Hendrix or Darby Crash or Roz Williams, what if we kept working? Do we eventually surpass them? You know, and that's what I said to Jatan. I said, you know, he was wonderful. They were wonderful. If they didn't finish their work and mm. we're good to finish our work and our body of work, you know, I don't care if anyone knows it, you know, my goal is that my body of work will be complete. So um, this that's kind of like the the scope of the story, you know. Um, and then uh, so it was very, and that gives her a place to 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 work out her poetry, you know. Yes, my God, that's a that's a big project, isn't it? You you know you you don't want to say God, you got to get it right, but you kind of got to get it right, haven't you? On such I, a subject, I'll tell you, we <laughs> had all the first six pieces were done, and all I had was the finale. This is the last thing. And I'm like, is she going to do it? Is she going to do it? She's done it six times. Can she do the seventh one? I'm so nervous. This has got to be the final thing. And she told me what her idea was, which I'm not going to really say what the idea is because it doesn't matter what the idea was. She told me the idea and I was like, oh my God, that's so scary. I don't know if that's going to work. I don't know if it's going to work. And she went out and sang it and just once more. And look, I become very full of myself working on these incredibly complex, elaborate classical pieces I start feeling very proud of myself and she walks in and sings something and my music is just background music. 
you know, <laughs> it's, and that's wonderful. It's wonderful. So, uh, yeah, that I had that absolute fear of like, you better get it right on the seventh piece. And she just, uh, I'm, she's really a witch. She, she makes amazing things happen. Wowza. God. I mean, you must think, hmm, wonder what we'll do next. <laughs> well, I mean, again, this, I, I would have felt, um, I don't know, maybe I'll have a baby. That's on, <laughs> that's on the table. You know, I don't know. But I, I will say, uh, I'm not as afraid about what I'll do next because this happened. Yes. You know, I'm actually, I'm looking forward to, I'll tell you what I'm looking forward to do. I'm looking forward to coming here and um, messing around, messing around and just having fun. And, you know, that's how it starts. See what you left know? is, yeah. To see what's in the soul of your of your consciousness and um, what comes out. I don't feel driven, you know. I don't feel driven, and I, you know, Nick Cave had these terrible tragedies happen to him, and it pulled out this amazing art. I tell you, I don't really want to have tragedies. I don't care. I mean, I'm I'm. This is the first time in my life where I don't feel, you know, I can I can help all these other people. It's a full time job. I'll tell you, you know. <laughs> and um yes i can do that for a little while I, and maybe there's another record in me but i i have to say the the last record was the record i've been working towards my whole life i didn't know it at the time but when i listen to it now it's like yeah i mean i hit on i mean i hit on subjects like identity there's a song called they and it was came out of my my grandchild came out as non-binary and i had to process that you know um yes. and um and it's a really big subject, a really, really big subject. And um, and and they and I wrote the music together. They played ukulele. They were like only 13 or 14 and they played ukulele. And and the song that came out and like that is a subject I would not consciously tackle. I would not consciously tackle uh, the subject of, of um, the flu fluid genders. I wouldn't do it. But with that person together, something came out that. I mean, I never can need to address that subject again, you know, and and there's a song on there called um, Seemed Like a Good Idea at the Time, which is really about my take on, well, both, you know, uh, the, the consumerism and the devouring of resources on the planet. You know, it's a very big subject. Uh, I'm, I've, uh, I think it's a really important subject. It's a very hard subject not to write a very bad song about. Yes, this a is very true. bad yeah. song. Eno just did a whole album on it, and I don't know if it's any good. I feel like I wrote one good song. I never read another. I think I handled it. I handled it so lightly, and I feel like you know, it's like you get to the truth of it. Is like the truth of it is, you know, we're doing it. We are. You and me are doing it. Yeah. It's not. It's not them. We are doing it every day. And, you know, and if you start there, you know, and why? Well, it seemed like a good idea at the time. You know, <laughs> it's very. So th there's a bunch of subjects like that that I, I don't I don't see. Now, maybe there's something I missed, you know, but I'm going to have to live more to to learn that, you know. Yes. Well, it's good that you've dealt with some of those subjects because they are very confusing. For, 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 oh, for yeah. <laughs> and, and, and I've had the experience of writing a song and going back years later and just shuddering shuddering so i know you can get it so wrong but i feel like you know i i've been burned by doing that and i understand that you um i don't go 
pointing my finger at people and angry. I'm either fatalistic or, you know, I look at show that I'm like that too. You know, I'm, I'm part of the problem. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. We're just spinning around on the planet, aren't we? So we're we're doing our best. I think that's the main thing. When you get older, you think, well, you know, I'm conscious. I'm more conscious now, but I'm just doing my best. I can't do, you know, I can't beat myself up. I think that's the important thing, isn't it? Well, I mean, unless you're going to, unless beating yourself up uh, affects change. If it doesn't (laughs) affect change, all you're doing is feeling self-pity and you're not, you're just making yourself feel bad. I, you know, people tell me there's a role for anger. I think if you're angry, you make bad decisions. That's my personal take. Other people say, no, anger will motivate you to, to affect change. And that's possible. I, um, I do think, um, you know, sitting there and feeling self-satisfied, which I would love to do and feeling like, well, you know, I try to be a little bit more demanding of myself, but you know, what I do know is that one thing I can do is put out beauty into the world, you know? That's kind of my job is to like, people come in here and by beauty, I don't mean that it has to be like, you know, pretty. I yes. mean, I mean, profound, you know, art that that at least can give people that bliss for a few minutes while they're listening to it, you know? And that's that seems like what I have to give. And so whatever can get my mind in the state where I can do that the most effectively, whether it's self-abuse once in a while. Uh, I told the guys in here, because sometimes people get in fights in the studio. I go, when you're listening to music, you know, you start judging it based on your mood. Like you're in a bad mood and you'll hear it one way. You're in a good mood, you'll hear it a different way. And you'll fuck up your mix depending on your mood. So I like try to have one mood. I've been trying to have one mood so that I can make good mixes so that I don't get, you know what I mean? I don't know if it's going to work, but it's what I'm trying to do. Equanimity, oh, I believe it's called. This is true. I mean, if you, I know this is a, you know, a bit vague, but if you could have you know, told your 16-year-old self or whispered something to your 16-year-old self, something as, as you were starting out, even if that person ignored you, is there anything in particular that you might have just said, oh, by the way, this would have been a good idea, even if you ignore it? Um. You know, I guess, you know, my my mom tried to commit suicide when I was 13. And it was a very traumatic experience for me. It was right at a time where I was really getting into music and I was starting to do a lot of drugs. And, um, you know, I never had any therapy or anything for that. And um, I think uh, that if I could have had therapy, there's certain aspects of my life, particularly in regard to my relationships with women, that I would have had a different, um, I would have been able to have, be a better partner in relationships, perhaps. Now, the caveat of that is all that heartbreak and bad relationships has pulled out music that is so emotional and so painful that I'm not sure I would want to tell that kid how to be healthy. You know, it's like I could have had a nice, happy life, never been a drug addict. And been a music professor or something, and so what? You know, I, I feel like um, the like we this was, goes back to the very beginning of our conversation when we were talking about my dad putting all those pressure. I mean, you all oh, that's not good, and like you know the suffering, being the person that was a hothouse flower and then forced to suffer. 
that to me is the opportunity to be the best that you could possibly be. Cause you have, you have all the tools given to you as a young kid and then all the hard life stuff to, to force you to grow up and have wisdom and not, not salve yourself with a trip to, you know, the Bahamas or, or a new purse or something, you know, or a swimming pool, you know, forced to like find some sort of inner wisdom. So, you know, and that's not to say I have any of it, but I hesitate to tell that kid, you know, to give him the wisdom to avoid the suffering. I mean, suffering is the touchstone of spiritual growth. Yes, the, in in those moments, we uh, we learn a lot about ourselves and things, don't we? <laughs> I think I could have spared that kid pain. Do I? Would I have? Should I have? Eh, I'm not sure. No, this is true. I know it's interesting when you're in those moments, how you react, and then you look back at how you reacted, and sometimes you feel like actually. It was a tricky period, but I'm pleased with myself. It, you know, I got through it and uh, I didn't, yeah, I didn't get worse. It didn't get worse. I, I sort of, you know, found myself in a position, took responsibility sometimes and managed to move on. And um, that can feel like a really great thing. You know, the butterfly effect. If I would have told that kid to get therapy, I never would have gotten the screamers. You know, it's like, <laughs> like that, you know, I would have stayed in college and I would have said to screamers, hey, I love your band. I would have loved to join them, but I've got to get my education, you know, instead of dropping out and making babies, you know, and just <laughs> and just like, you know, being crazy. So on the on the journey of life. Yes. Well, this is amazing. I'm really looking forward to your um next project. This is this is always good, isn't it? This is the best thing in life. And I said earlier, you know, you're a very good conversationalist. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Paul, I'll um Yes, I'll keep in touch and I'll send you a link if you want. And also, yeah, I'll look forward to hearing the the new project. And I, you know, I've been enjoying your new album as well. So it's been because it's on Spotify for a while and Bang and Bandcamp. You've all got all your work on Bandcamp. So I'll put a link on that as well. So uh, that's great. But yeah, good luck and um, look forward to some uh, gothic, classical, epic saga. I will. Uh, I will send you an MP3 of one of the pieces just so you can have an idea yes i'm really right. curious i do love i do love a bit of sort of yeah as a rick wakeman fan you know <laughs> uh it's very diverse i'll send you one if you want to hear more i'll send you more oh yeah I'll okay i'll send i'll send you one to wet your wet your whistle wet my whistle okay look have a lovely night and i'm going to um yes have breakfast take care thanks a lot much bye. all the best bye-bye and that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I'm sure you gathered that, actually. A massive thank you to Paul Rosler for giving me the time for that. And uh, you can find a lot of his material on Bandcamp and various other places. I will give you some links afterwards. Anyway, this has been The C86 Show, David Easter. If you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do The C86 Show or just C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived. Aren't you lucky? You can find those on Spotify, iTunes or Podbean. It's true. Anyway, look, have a great week. Stay safe.